The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. My name is Azar Lalzin and I'm part of the Board of Church Governance here. So far this morning, we've already heard a number of stories of times of grief within our church family. And, and in those times of grief, witnessing and experiencing God's presence. Dark nights in the life of our church. I'm going to share with you one such night. And for those of us who were there, uh, this is probably one of the darkest nights that we've gone through as a body of believers. What I'm about to share may be a new story for some in this room. But for others, it may bring up certain emotions. And the intent of sharing is not to focus on our failures or our feelings, but on the goodness of God. So let me start by using the words of Psalm 19, verse 14, to anchor us in the right mindset. And I'm going to turn this into a corporate prayer uh, as I start. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last Sunday, David Wynn shared how the church was started just under 60 years ago. And right from the start, this church family lived in God's goodness and God's blessings. The church family worked harmoniously for a long period of time. There was community, there was camaraderie, there was lots of love and fellowship. And for just under 50 years, the church had functioned remarkably well. Ministry was thriving, attendance was growing, uh, new facilities were being moved into. In the early 2000s, we were able to purchase a new property, a new piece of land, and had paid it off remarkably uh, in, in a very short period of time. We were then starting to look at building a new facility to continue the ministry of this church. By all accounts, by all measures of church metrics, we were doing great. We were doing fine. We were doing really well in some circles. Life was good. And then it happened. The year was 2007, and our church encountered our first ever real conflict. You see, prior to 2007, we would witness conflict in the annual business meetings in November when we discussed our budget. And the conflict would be, should we increase support for our missionaries or should we increase the number of missionaries we support or can we do both? Or the question would be, should Providence and Taylor get the same amount of, uh, of, of support or should we increase it this year? Those were our conflicting conversations prior to 2007. But in 2007, the conflict centered around the departure of our senior pastor. And as with any such event, there were opposing viewpoints and everyone believed that their viewpoint was the only valid viewpoint. And this created a rift in our church family. We did not see eye to eye. We disagreed. And then it all blew up. We drew battle lines. Friends became foes. People who had done life together for, for years did not want to be around each other anymore. And in all of this, we brought great disrespect to God's name 
and to each other. We called each other names. We were malicious and we hurt each other. This was a full-blown church conflict. This was the undiscovered country where no one in this church had ever gone before. And we did not know how to work through conflict. And while everyone felt that they were the victims of this conflict, they were also the ones inflicting pain on others within the church body. The vitriol, the anger, the animosity was unprecedented. It had never been experienced before. And this highly toxic environment persisted for nearly three months. At the height of the conflict, somewhere between 15 and 20 families decided to leave the church. The empty pews and missing faces were a reminder of what had happened. But even in that time, while some families chose to leave the church, many families chose to stay and walk with their brothers and sisters through this trial. And then something remarkable started to happen. It is said that the night is the darkest before the dawn, and that was true for us as well. The light of God's goodness was starting to break through, and in the midst of the storm, he was beginning a new work in us. When it seemed that all hope was lost, the God of hope was coming to our rescue. And it occurred on the very first Sunday without a senior pastor. Our pulpit supply was a man named George Bell. Yes, that is Pastor Alf Bell's brother. We ended up with a better brother for the long run. <laughs> but that Sunday, that Sunday, George Bell was God's gift to us. He knew the conflict, he knew the situation that the church was in, and he did not pander to the situation. He came up here and preached the word of God. And that's what we needed. A couple of Sundays after that, two young men from our church family stood on this platform, this very platform. I can still picture them in my head. And they both shared that they did not agree with each other. They were in conflict. But then they put their arms around each other and publicly proclaimed that they were going to work together and fellowship together and worship together. They were not going to let their opposing stances affect their friendship and brotherhood in Christ. They were going to work it out together. God was starting a remarkable work of healing. And I, I wish I can tell you that with the snap of his finger, we were good as new, fully healed and happy and ready to take on the world. But that would be a lie. The road to healing and recovery was long, challenging, and often painful. On this road to recovery, the Lord brought two men to our church. One was Pastor Phil Putz, who was our regional minister at that time. And the second was Pastor Ralph Bell, who became our interim pastor. God used these two men, and especially Pastor Ralph, to bring resolution and healing. Shortly after the conflict, God in his mercy revealed to us that there was sin within this body. And though our sins were many, the chief among them was pride. We had somehow become self-reliant and self-confident. Pastor Ralph recognized this as well, and we as a church started our trek back towards God. There were times when we would spend the entire Sunday morning in prayer. We would confess our sins, repent, and seek God's forgiveness. There were times when Pastor Ralph would start his sermon with these words, 
it's going to hurt today. And then he would preach a scathing sermon which would feel like a root canal surgery without any numbing gel. Or the Sundays when he would come up and simply say, there is sin in this room that needs to be addressed. But there were also Sundays when there will be a chair on this stage here. And Pastor Ralph would say, I am not going to talk to you as your pastor. I'm going to talk to you as Grandpa Alf. And then you won't preach at all, but he would just talk to us. Our journey was long and often painful, but like the parable of the prodigal son, the Holy Spirit led us back to God. And like the father in the parable, our Heavenly Father ran back to us. In all of this, we experienced God's goodness. He was patient. He was kind. He did not deal with us as he could have. He showed mercy upon mercy. He softened our hearts and our spirits. The Holy Spirit worked in the lives of his people and prepared us to hear his word. His goodness and mercy that have been over us since the beginning of this church were still there, but we had lost our focus. So he tore us down to build us up and he disciplined us so we can experience his love again. It was during this time that God renewed a passion for missions and it started with our first mission trip to India and then grew to serving others in downtown Winnipeg and Garden Hill and Bolivia. These mission trips removed our self-centered, prideful blinders and gave us a glimpse of God's vision for his people. Looking back at the events from 12 years ago and the years following that, we are humbled at how God's love has covered us over this time. I would not wish upon anyone what we went through as a church, but I am always thankful for God's faithfulness to us. His faithfulness that was there when this church was founded is the same faithfulness that's with us today. His faithfulness is far greater than our failures and continues to be that. His grace was unlimited and completely unmerited, and his love is boundless and so very much needed. And so, so today, if you see anything good happening within the walls of this church, within this church body, it is only because of God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his love to us. Thank you. So before I talk about how God has grown me closer to him through the season of grief and loss, I just want to say, God is good. Even when we don't see good around us all the time. These last five years of life have been far from what I could have ever imagined. Cancer diagnosis for my wife Mel, subsequent treatment for her, amidst having a huge scare with my own health, which resulted in eventual head and brain surgery for me. Further treatment for Mel and then a continued decline in her health, ultimately to her passing in August 2015 after a long spirited fight. God was growing me and us, including my girls, in our faith during this journey. Throughout both of our sicknesses, he allowed us to experience a sense of peace 
that was unquestionably from him. It couldn't have come from anywhere else. As these circumstances that we had been thrown into couldn't possibly coexist with peace in this world, except that peace came from above. Don't get me wrong, Mel's passing caused me lots of questions with much anger, pain, feelings of aloneness and fear of my future. My closest friends and my church family have always been there for me. But boy, did they step it up during this time as they visited, blessed us with meals, cards, with verses, words of encouragement, and so much more. I just sensed a rock solid faith in Christ in so many of them. And it did become contagious. My wrestling with God turned into thankfulness for how he was caring for me and my girls and also my families. His fingerprints were becoming more evident in my daily life, even in the season of grief. So many prayers were uttered on our behalf and they were truly felt. His care and love from others is one of the many examples of Christ's fingerprints. The realization of the importance of being involved and part of the family of Christ's church home really couldn't have been stronger. This thankfulness grew despite walking a journey of grief. And although my faith was being tested, so concurrently it was growing. The Lord was revealing himself to me often in my personal prayer and devotion life and in my relationships with friends family and the body of believers here at White Ridge Baptist Church. My grief journey has continued over the last several years and there have been many ups and downs during that time. But there's also been much consistency. God has been there through it all for me and for my girls. Despite the hardness of these days, the Lord continues to bless me. And these blessings include seeing my girls grow and develop in their own faith amidst grief. The publishing of Mel's book, Our Hope Adventure, and hearing from so many different people who read it, some who I know and many who I've never met. Just hearing how impactful and life-changing reading those words and seeing how real her faith has been for them has been so meaningful to me. Blessings have also come in the form of new relationships, of which there are many. This would include my widower's club, three other Christian guys who have all walked a similar journey, and we get together regularly to share and do life together. Guys who have been there, experienced similar days and feelings, understand and can truly empathize with me. It actually hasn't just been new relationships. It's been other long-standing relationships that have been strengthened and go much deeper than they ever did before. Why? Why is this the case? I believe God has put it in our hearts that we are here on earth for a very short time. So let's make a difference, invest deeply into each other and those around us. 
because that's what we're called to do. Let's not just be surface friends, rather do life together at a much deeper level. Ask those tough questions, pray together, hold each other accountable, and so on. This reminds me of a song that I've played on my phone many a times. It's by Switchfoot and it's called Live It Well. The lyrics go like this. Life is short. Live it well. Because you're the one that I'm living for. Our lives really are very short. Obviously some shorter than others. So I'm learning that I need to make a difference while I'm here. That will only happen if I continue to look to my Savior who gives me strength and is good. I don't get it right all the time. I don't always think that and I certainly don't always say that. But I'm learning. And Christ continues to grow me as I lean on Him. And I truly want to be able to say as Paul did and as Mel did. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, this morning, just want to take time to acknowledge that it takes great courage to face our fears and our grief and to enter into the presence of God and accept him as our peace and our comfort. And when we do that, he eventually leads us to share our lives with others in a way that is deep and meaningful. And in that, sometimes it's a risk. Sometimes we get hurt. Other times we get great comfort. But in that, we mature as a church body as we see Christ in and among us and through us. And uh, I just want to encourage you uh, as our church family that uh, we have much, much in front of us. As we look at God's faithfulness behind us, we have much of his faithfulness to experience ahead of us. And a lot of it has to do with our lives becoming more and more interconnected. And uh, so I'm not going to share with you a lot of details today. I just want to let you know that next Sunday we'll have a connecting point brochure out that will let you see some of the ways between February to May that we have planned to create environments where we can be together, get to know one another, and just ask for you to prayerfully uh, set aside some of those times so that we can grow in the love of Christ among us. Also want to let you know that uh, in the midst of our transition, we feel that God we see God's faithfulness everywhere, and our move it feels like it's been going extremely well. And not just in the physical things, but also in the relational things. We were able to talk through things. We're able to uh, just move in a heartfelt joy about what's in front of us and know that that, again, involves us growing closer in Christ together. So I want to encourage you with that. Uh, right now, next uh, week, we still have a service here. Uh, this is the We Are Here card, and there will be another one that tells you the details about when we're at McGilvery. We as a church are moving to a new facility. We're the church and we're moving. And we just need to be praying that we keep our eyes on Christ and that we experience the joy of him again living in and through us. I want to let you know that next Sunday in the afternoon between 2 and 5, we will be having an open house at the new facility. And so we hope that you set aside that time to come, walk through the new facility, thank God for what he's provided. And again, be praying that just as we have had sacred moments here, that he will bless us with so many sacred moments there. 
may he be glorified in that. So I just want to pray, and then Terry will come up and share from us to us with God's words. So, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for a time of remembrance. And uh, Lord, in the midst of hard times, to realize that your goodness is always steadfast, to realize that your heart is always for us. And Father, our prayer is that you do such a work in us that our heart is always for you and our heart is always for one another. Lord, mature us so that when people see us living together as a church family, they witness the life of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. We thank you so much that you are our God and we submit ourselves to you joyfully because you are the source of all life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Doug. Well, what we have been doing up here this morning uh, together is almost finished. Uh, but uh, the work that has to be done down there among you is not, is hardly begun, perhaps, I could say. It's, in other words, what I'm saying is that you've been seeing and meditating and listening to stories, but it's evoked things in your own heart. It's, it's stirred the pot. And there's some work you need to do. And so what I would like to do in our little time that we have remaining is just to take you by the hand and, and to help you think theologically about where God is at in whatever you're passing through at this time or whatever you've passed through in the past and you still are processing. I'm sure that all of you are familiar with the serenity prayer. Uh, Lord, it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Would you just pause right now and think about something you can't change? The courage to change the things I can. Would you pause and think about things you can change? And the wisdom to know the difference. You know, God, you cannot do what only God can do, and God will not do what he expects you to do. And when we get that wrong, we get stuck. You know, a lot of people don't know uh, that, that, that prayer, that poem, was written by a man by the name of Richard Niebuhr, a theologian pastor from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he wrote it around 1930. It became the 12-step prayer, the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer, and so on. But many of you and I, perhaps maybe we've not heard the rest of that prayer. So I'm going to read it to you. It said, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. That's a prayer worth praying. This morning, as we've been walking through painful stories of our own church family's past, we, uh, 
For some of you, there are stories that are being heard. So for some of us, it's stories that have been lived. And each story that is represented up here, I'm sure there's dozens others that are represented in the pews and in our own hearts. And as I mentioned last week, we cannot tell stories as Christians the way that many people in the world tell stories. And the reason that we can't tell stories the way that most in the world tell stories is because most stories in the world are written and they're the centerpiece of the story. But when we as Christians tell stories, we know intuitively that God is the centerpiece of the story. And that indeed to think Christianly and to reflect theologically and to believe biblically, we must actually put God at the center of the story and recognize that we are supporting actors in a much bigger narrative that he is writing. And so we have to see his fingerprints, find his footprints in all that we are doing. In the early church, when they picked up the book of Psalms, they knew that this book was, being, was written by those who were fellow believers that had gone before and that somehow were writing out of their own experience. And the believers in the early church recognized that, that somehow they found a part of their own life and their own storied lives in the Psalms. And that's why the Psalms became such an important part of the early church down to this day. And so as we think about this, we recognize that God is speaking, not just in His Word, in propositional truth, but in His Word and in history and through His people in storied ways. You know, the author C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us, in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience and he shouts at us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And so as we reflect on some of the pain in the stories that we've lived and heard, let's think about what God is up to. We're going to look at a psalm this morning, Psalm 77, if you want to reference it. We're not going to stand and read it, but we're going to talk about it. John Piper, the pastor from Bethlehem Church in Minneapolis, said that this is a prayer, this psalm, and that it has to be read authentically, therefore it has to be prayed. It's, it's a prayer, it has to be prayed. And that's the way all scriptures should be. It should be in the presence of God that we look at it. And uh, I love what he says. He says, God is always listening to his own word in our mouths, in our minds, and then he says, he is watching to see what we will do with it. What will we do with it? So in, this, in, this, in Psalm 77, a man by the name of Asaph has written this psalm. And he has gone through something very difficult in his experience. He does not tell us in any way what his difficulty of circumstance has been. But he begins in verses 1 to 6 to describe on a horizontal plane the, the awfulness of his life. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out with weary, without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. My spirit made a diligent search. 
This is the experience of a person who is questioning their circumstances. It's completely on the horizontal plane. Though he references God, he says, whenever I think about God, I just moan. There's no comfort there. This is a a man who is going through the experience on a horizontal plane and struggling. In the middle of it, that word selah, verse 3, means that he's pausing in the middle of it to think it over, to ponder it, reflect about it. And though we're not told what he has gone through, we realize he is obsessing. Have you ever been at a place where because of something painful in your life, you begin to obsess on it? You cannot put it aside. It is on your mind day and night. You are stuck. And that stuckness is the very thing that takes you to an even darker place. Now, you think, well, what could be darker than what this man is experiencing? Well, what's darker, you see, is when the horizontal plane that he's been on so far begins to change and become the vertical question. That's when the stuckness of this pain and sorrow goes to a deeper and darker place. And so we see in verses 7 to 9 that when he begins to enter into this question of God in the midst of his pain, that's where the darkness really starts to get dark. Look at verse 7. He says with questions, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And again, there's the pause, the selah. You see, he is at such a difficult place as he ponders these questions. These are faith-shaking questions. And the grief that has hit him so hard, his circumstances, the aching, the emptiness that is in his life has taken him there. It's a critical moment. In fact, it is the critical moment of anyone that goes into any grief or pain or loss. This is the critical moment. Not just the horizontal circumstances that everyone on earth has to endure at one time or another in some capacity. What really is dark and deep and hard is when that starts to be now addressed on a vertical plane with God entering the stage. What will happen now to this psalm? What will happen to the man who's writing these thoughts and feelings in his own journal? Will he spiral out of faith and leave God behind? Will will he become engulfed in grief and in self-pity or in the envy of others who seem to have lives that are pain-free? Will his thoughts take him to that critical moment of darkness and and decide he he will not emerge from this with God anymore? Will he become bitter? Will he become jaded? Will he become hardened? Will he become agnostic? Will he become atheistic? How is he going to emerge from this deep struggle where all the real good questions are being asked? We have to go to those questions. How do we answer them? This is what I believe this author gives us a clue as to how he emerges from this painful time in a good way. And how he does it is that he does not leave the horizontal disconnected from the vertical. He brings them together. And verses 10 to 12 is where we see the light beginning to dawn. 
where he begins to link the horizontal to the vertical. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder your work, O God, and meditate on your mighty deeds. Notice the, the, the strategy here. The strategy of picking himself up by his own bootstraps. The strategy of digging himself out of the pit of despair. The strategy that this man has chosen is appealing to God, remembering God, pondering God, meditating on God. A new reference point. Now, not just his experience, but a new reference point. That's his strategy for spiritual depression. He is going to intentionally and consciously bring his mind not into his own pain and past, but into God and his incredible glory, his faithfulness, his works, his history among his own people. And in verse 13, it begins. And for the rest of the psalm, it is all but praise. It is, is everything, sorry, praiseworthy. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And you know, something that's interesting is that he doesn't go back in this psalm to his own circumstances. He doesn't go back to his own reference point any, anymore. He has a new reference point. It is God's faithfulness. He's not denied his pain. He has not denied his past. He is not living in illusion. He's not tried to sweep things under the rug. This is not the power of positive thinking. He has simply said, I will appeal to God because the little experience that I'm facing is small and, and brief compared to the grandeur of God and his history and his promises. These light and momentary afflictions are achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so he recognizes that, indeed, God is the center of every story, and he goes to God to find solutions and answers to the questions. And you and I have to do the same. If we're going to get beyond the stuckness, if we're going to more, do more than just survive, but learn the lessons. I'm reading a book right now by, the name, by, uh, by a Japanese author named Ken Shigematsu, who was mentored by Leighton Ford. Leighton Ford is the brother-in-law to Billy Graham. And at a time, early in his life, he was an incredible evangelist, speaker. He was like Billy Graham on the world stage. He would travel to countries all around the world, and he would be preaching and sharing, and stadiums were filled, and Leighton Ford was preaching. The stadiums filled with people all around the globe. Around this time, his son Sandy, 21 years old, was an up-and-coming athlete at a university in the United States, and he was especially good in the track and field area. And one day, he, he was diagnosed with a, a very rare heart illness, and they said that he could continue to train and be competing and so on, but something happened. He died. He died at the age of 21, and uh, at the, after the funeral, Leighton Ford had the difficult responsibility of going to his son's university dorm room and cleaning out 
his room. And as he got there, he, he recognized there was a journal right beside the bed that he opened up. And uh, he read from his son Sandy's journal an, an entry that had taken place a few months earlier while he was on a mission trip to France. And he wrote this. He said, I still have dreams of what I could be and what I'd like to do and what life should be, it says. But I'm beginning to, real, beginning to realize that life to me is really short. That was a moving thing for a father to read, but not quite as much of an impact as what, he hap what happened next was he, he saw on Sandy's desk in his dorm room a poem that he had started but never finished. And the poem at the top of the page was entitled To Dad for His 50th Birthday. It began like this. What a golden honor it would be to don your mantle, to inherit twice times your spirit, for then you would be me and I would continue to be you. The poem was never finished. Leighton Ford sat on his son's bed and wept. He thought about the promise of a faithful young life that will never, never be fulfilled. The mantle will never be placed on Sandy's shoulders. And in the middle of this searing loss, Leighton Ford reflects later on and says, that God met him in that moment, drawing him close to him, and he sensed even in that moment a calling of the Holy Spirit into a completely different ministry. This is in 1981. And he felt the Lord was opening a brand new door, that he was called to step out of the limelight of world stadiums and into the obscurity of one-on-one -on -one mentoring with young men and women. And so he did. And I've met various people who have been mentored by Leighton Ford, who are in their own right now mentors, and the ripple effects of this man's life and of Sandy's death continue to go on and on. The author of this book is one of those. The book is called Survival Guide for the Soul by Ken Shigematsu. Leighton Ford's 87 now, and he's still doing this. Still writing his life on the lives of others, young men and women. You see, if we go through pain, if we go through discouragement and disappointment and opposition and, and, and loss and death and grief, and we don't reflect deeply about what God is up to, then, then we miss out. If we don't do the work of connecting the horizontal to the vertical, we don't get beyond the stuckness. There was another place where the horizontal and the vertical met perfectly. It was in the cross of Jesus Christ. What was God saying in the cross of Jesus Christ when perfect unity happened in that vertical-horizontal connection? It was God was saying, I love you. I love you as you are. I love you incomplete. 
I love you messed up. I love you with your sin. I love you. And I've come down to show you that love. And I've come down not to leave you in the mess, but to lift you up. And to make out of your life, even in the midst of loss and pain and grief, something that will be more beautiful than if you'd never had it in your life at all. I love you too much just to leave you alone. That's the message of God, the Father, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you and I can connect the horizontal to the vertical, our lives can grow exponentially in a short period of time as Jesus Christ begins to unveil the plans he has for our lives. If you wanted to read more about this, Leighton Ford, there's a webpage called Leighton Ford Ministries. And one of the most interesting things I could just say to you is there's, in the, in the weeks and months after Sandy's death, Leighton Ford journaled. He called it Conversations with Sandy. Stuff he never got a chance to converse with his son about. And he's taken some of those excerpts and put them on his webpage. Maybe that'll minister to your heart too. As I conclude, I want to read to you some words from a very special passage of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 18. And uh, I want you to receive this reading as, as the way the Lord would give it to you. Uh, the way God would be speaking to you. And I'll ask the worship team to come. Jeremiah 18, this is says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And he said to me, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. And so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at the wheel. That's what potters do. They're working at the wheel. Can you imagine in your mind this this clay and, and the, the wheel going around and the potter working at a lump of clay that's pliable in his hands. And it says in Jeremiah 18, it says, And the vessel that he was making of the clay was marred and spoiled in the potter's hands. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said to me, O house of Israel, you could put your name in there. Can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Lord God, for as many people are in this room, there are at least that many stories right now. And for as many believers in Christ that there are in this world, there are that many stories that you are writing about your son, Jesus Christ. And we think now of those in our church family whose stories perhaps are particularly dynamic right now. We think of Pastor Elf as he's back in the hospital and waiting for some tests. I pray that you would comfort him. We think of David Hildebrandt as well, uh, recovering from surgery this past week. I pray that you would meet him and Brenda where they are as well. And for, for them and for each one of us, Lord, whatever our story is, 
right now. I pray that you would give us the grace to keep on finding the horizontal or the, the vertical in the midst of the horizontal. I pray, Lord, that we would keep on finding Jesus in the story you are writing, that you would be honored. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go from here. Feel free to come up and see the displays if you'd like to. God bless. Thank you.